Welcome to The Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. We've been on a journey together, and it has been a journey between two kingdoms. One is the kingdom of this world that I have called the kingdom of Hollywood. The other is a kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of heaven. We're walking on a path through worlds at war. Let's talk about where our path leads. Well, this study has always been for creative people who are struggling. So I'm so glad you're able to be here tonight. I know that uh, here in Southern California, what creative person doesn't struggle in one way or another? This is a place for suffering and struggle. And this study has always been designed in my mind, and hopefully in those of you who have been attending, with the idea of helping us know how to follow God more deeply through very dark days. Uh, we're here to help each other along what Jesus called the narrow road. According to what he said, that narrow road is only the only one that leads to the kingdom of heaven. And the most disturbing thing was that, it, that very few people seem to uh, be going to find it. That should disturb us all. For a number of months we've been studying what I've called the power statements of Jesus found in Matthew 5. Um, these are known as the Beatitudes. You know that if you've been here any time, you know I hate that name. It has such a wonderfully religious sound to it. When Jesus made these statements, uh, they were incredibly radical. They went against the accepted understanding of the, of the way people ought to live and be as religious people in his day. And they certainly do today as well, if we take them and understand them seriously. Tonight we're going to deal with the last two of those statements. I'm going to talk about them together because they really go together. All of the previous statements that he made point toward these two. But before we begin, I, I want to say a few words about studies that are to come. I want to conclude the series, and this series has been called The Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of Hollywood. Those of you who have been with us for a while, you know uh, that's the, the topic. We're going to conclude this series with several evenings devoted to heaven. Now, we know that heaven is the physical location of the kingdom of God right now. Jesus said that he was going to prepare a home for us, those of us who put our faith in him. And someday, heaven, that center of God's kingdom, is going to come to earth. You know, signs everywhere are pointing strongly toward the soon return of Jesus the King. I believe, and after looking at this for a long time, that there are signs that we're seeing today that have never existed before in the history of the church. We are at an amazing moment. But I've got to tell you, you've got to be honest. If you ask many followers of Jesus to describe heaven right now, you would get some pretty vague answers. Now, the way a lot of people think about heaven, it doesn't even sound very interesting. We're just sort of hanging around with harps. We're strumming away as we sit on pink clouds. Is that the kind of heaven, uh, sort of the place where you want to go? You know, I do believe this after studying the, and I continue to study the powers of darkness and what they are doing in this world, that Satan and his lords of darkness, as we call them, love such ignorance about heaven among God's people. It allows them to present the greatest lie of all, and that is that hell is a lot more fun. Have you heard that? I'm sure you have. You know, as I get older, I suppose I think more and more about heaven. So many of my friends have gone there and more leave this world every year. My father and mother and little sister are there. And I am fast approaching, as much as I hate to think about it, three score years and ten. You know, that's what the Bible calls the normal allotted years that we have in this world. I like what one of my heroes, the evangelist D.L. Moody of the 19th century said. He wrote this once. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that's all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like Jesus' glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837, and I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. Well, I would say this at this point in my life. Someday you're going to hear that Coleman Luck is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? You know, friends, I say this often, and people who want to live in a fantasy world really hate to hear it. The world is about to grow much, much darker. It's going to get much more difficult than it is now. 
Now, that's awful to hear because some of us are going through tremendous difficulty right now. We look around and there doesn't seem to be any hope. We're so tired in the situation we're in right now. We just want to give up. There's so many like that. I know so many. Sorrow comes on sorrow and apparently it comes without end. We pray and so often the opposite of what we ask for is what we get. People we consider to be friends either can't or won't help us. Some turn their backs on us in the middle of great difficulty because they aren't having our problems. They think we're doing something wrong. Pagan teachings about success and suffering have invaded the church, the body of the Messiah. At times like this, everything we believe about God can appear to be a fantasy. And that's what the people of this world tell us it is. To make matters worse, we look around and people who don't seem to care about God or Jesus or believe in Him at all, they seem to be doing just fine, thank you. Whether that's really true or not is a separate issue, but it seems to be true. At least they're doing better than we are. So you might ask Coleman, after all that you've just said, you're, thing, you're saying things will get even worse. Um, how will I know the difference? There are some people whose lives are so difficult now. Trust me, you will know the difference. The very darkness that's coming points toward an infinitely greater light. If ever there was a person who based his whole life on reality and not fantasy, it was Jesus the Messiah. When Satan took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms that would ever be, all the vast cities with their wealth and their splendor, and yes, I'm sure he saw Hollywood right there. He turned down the opportunity to rule them in what appeared to be the easy way. All he would have had to do was kneel down and worship the prince of darkness. And there are many people in this town who are doing exactly that right now. As Jesus looked at those kingdoms, I believe in his mind, there was something far more wonderful than the splendor that was spread before him. He knew that compared to the city of God that he was going to build, those cities were like fantasies of dark smoke. Do you remember what he said in John 14, 1-3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And a short time later after that, he said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. What do those words mean? They mean do not put your hope in fantasies. Face reality. But as you do that, don't focus all your attention on the horrible things that are going on in this life right now. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me consciously with discipline, focus your attention and your faith on me. Invest all your hope in me. And in the middle of the storm, I'll give you peace. All of us have been deeply influenced by the fantasies of this world. Hollywood is a major purveyor of those fantasies. Many of them are terribly destructive. In the days to come, that which is not eternally real is going to be utterly swept away in preparation for the coming of the kingdom of Jesus. That sweeping away is going to cause great fear in people who have invested their lives in fantasy. So no matter what darkness and difficulty we may be facing today, knowing all we can about Jesus' kingdom and our place within it is very important. This isn't just a sort of pie-in-the-sky discussion. Jesus only deals in eternal reality. Does knowing all we can about what he has prepared for us make things easier at this moment? Well, both yes and no, right? Knowing that we're still living in the muck and the awfulness that's all around us, the pain and the difficulty that you're facing right now, but yes, because it gives us a wonderful hope and a goal. If you believe in Jesus, if you have prayed and asked him to forgive your sins and give you a new life, someday what you're going through right now will be over forever. Someday you will understand the purpose for all of it. In that day, faithfulness to God will be rewarded, even if it's a staggering, stumbling kind of faithfulness like mine so often is. When I was in Vietnam in 1968 as a young combat officer, there wasn't a day that passed during that awful year when I didn't have one goal in front of me. That one goal was going home. 
getting off that plane in Chicago and being with my wife and my family was on my mind, in the back of my mind, every single day of my year in that country. What anticipation I felt to be with Carol and to eat a Chicago pizza. <laughs> Should we have any less anticipation about seeing Jesus and entering his kingdom? That's where our real homes and our real family are right now. So we're going to spend several evenings talking about heaven and the amazing kingdom that awaits those who have placed their faith in Jesus. The Bible says much more about it than you may imagine. But before we talk about the real heaven, we're going to spend an evening talking about a false heaven. Because Satan and his creatures want to present their false heaven to you, and they want you to believe that it is real. Our focus in studying this false heaven will be a book published last year titled Proof of Heaven, A Scientist's Case for the Afterlife, written by Dr. Eben Alexander, a neurosurgeon. Dr. Alexander contracted a near-fatal brain infection, which caused his cerebral cortex to completely stop functioning for days. That is one definition of death. During that time, Dr. Alexander had an absolutely stunning experience of what he considers to be heaven and the afterlife. His book continues to receive a great deal of attention in the press. Probably you've heard about it. As expected, it has come under attack by other scientists who think what he saw were just hallucinations caused by chemical changes in the brain as it came close to death. I believe that Dr. Alexander saw exactly what he claims to have seen. We're going to talk about what he saw, and then we're going to examine some very troubling issues related to it in light of the Bible. After reading many near-death experiences over many years, and I can tell you if anybody knows me, and I know a number of you do, I am a collector of all sorts of strange and odd facts and information. Um, it just oozes all over me. But I do believe this. I, I believe this after decades of studying strange things that are happening in this world and near-death experiences. I believe that Satan can present a powerful and very real-appearing simulation of God's heaven and even present himself as God. We're going to talk about that in detail in relation to Dr. Alexander's book. So many people, even believers in Jesus, have been misled about the nature of Satan and his hosts of evil. Sadly, I'm afraid some of those misconceptions have come from writings of a few modern Christian authors who present only one view of our great enemy and his kingdom. Those writers present the powers of darkness as nothing but vile little ugly monsters Demons that sit on your shoulders. In my opinion, that is a major mistake. In the context of Dr. Alexander's experience, we will talk about the ravishingly beautiful side of evil. An illusion so wonderful, it can seem that you have entered the heaven of God. But all of that, of course, is next month. The seventh and next to last of Jesus' power statements found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, our journey through these power statements has brought us to one of the most difficult. I say that every single time, don't I? We've finally reached another one that's really horrible. This one is really difficult. What in the world does it mean to be a peacemaker? How do you do it? What's it about? Probably many of us think of peacemaking as kind of negotiating. The peacemaker stands between two warring parties trying to get them to resolve their differences. It's a kind of dramatic image, isn't it? In the wonderful book, Lords of the Earth, missionary biographer Don Richardson tells the story of Stan Dale, a pioneer missionary to New Guinea. Back in the early 1950s, Stan and his wife trekked deep inland where there were vicious tribes that had never seen a Caucasian. No preparation work had been done. It was just the two of them wandering around looking for bloodthirsty people to tell about Jesus. Well, on their journey one day, they came out into a valley. Spread out in front of them were two warring tribes killing each other, probably something they'd done for centuries. Stan simply yelled at them to stop, held up his hands, and walked right in between them. The warriors were so shocked at seeing such a strange-looking creature that they did stop. And Stan brought the message of God's love to them. I think that's how sort of many of us have a dramatic view of what peacemaking operations might be. Now, I've never stood between people who were killing each other 
but I have tried to stand between warring Christians, and that's just about as bad. Over a decade ago, I was asked to negotiate between a multi-million selling author and the Christian men. He's a Christian author, and the Christian men he was suing. We spent five hours in prayer and discussion. When it was finished, it seemed very clear that the lawsuit was going to be dropped, and there would be peace between these men. Of course, the, all the story of this situation, this lawsuit had spread throughout all of Hollywood, dragging Jesus' name in the dirt. Well, within 24 hours, this Christian author called me to say that he had changed his mind and he was continuing the suit. Years, and I am not exaggerating, millions and millions of dollars later, he lost. Carol and I have tried to negotiate and bring peace between warring married couples. You know, you talk about wasted time. In one congregation, we were asked to hold a 10-week discussion group for couples who were having crises in their marriages. We laid down one ground rule. During these 10 weeks, you must agree not to threaten each other with divorce. Now, does that seem really unreasonable to you? Does that seem kind of logical? Do you know they couldn't do it? They couldn't do it. They claimed to want to save their marriages, but they didn't want that enough to follow one simple rule. And they were, by the way, enraged at me when we called off the group because I considered it to be a waste of time. Oh, the fire that fell on my head. In all my life, I can't really remember one such attempt on my part at being a peacemaker that turned out very well. So many people say they want peace but they really don't. The truth is that based on a biblical understanding of being a peacemaker, in my whole life, I think I have never known more than three or four people, Christian people, who I would consider to have been real peacemakers. Interestingly, none of, none of those people were psychologists and certainly none were lawyers. Now, if you enjoy dark, dark humor, I knew one Christian who proclaimed himself a peacemaker and even started a formal ministry for that purpose. That's what he had, and he had called it that, peacemakers. And he was such an unwise man that his entry into a trying situation made things much worse. He didn't bring peace. He brought war. So what is a peacemaker? What did Jesus mean? Let me ask another question. Was Jesus himself a peacemaker? He's called the Prince of Peace. But in Matthew 10, 34, he said that he hadn't come to bring peace at all. He'd come to bring a sword to turn families against each other. And certainly through all the centuries, that has been true. Is that peacemaking? I'm sure you know that the word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. So Jesus' statement might read, Blessed are the shalom makers. Shalom makers. What did that mean? You know, in Hebrew, shalom never means just the absence of trouble. It doesn't simply mean, I hope you don't have war in your life. Uh, when a person says shalom, what they really ought to be saying, according to the original meaning, is, I want for you everything that makes for your highest good. Not just the absence of evil, but the presence of all good things. Shalom means that your very best interests are the desire of my heart. To really mean that makes shalom a selfless statement. It means that you really care about someone else and that you truly do have those desires for another person. I'm afraid that's really rare. Certainly it's unusual among people who say they believe in Jesus. One place where that kind of shalom does exist, I think, is in parents for their children, isn't it? As parents, how much we want shalom and all the deepest meaning of that word in their lives and we do all we can to help them find it. But beyond parenting, where do you see it? I'm afraid not very often. The Bible commentator William Barclay makes an interesting point. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peace lovers. He said, peacemakers. Now you can be a peace lover and make terrible decisions in your life that lead to disaster and war. You can avoid confrontation that needs to take place letting the situation get worse and worse by telling yourself that you just want peace. I can't think of a single person I have known who has turned his or life into a living hell who didn't love the idea of peace. So what does it take to be a real peacemaker, not just a peace lover?
To find out, let's start by asking the opposite question. What does it take to be a person who brings chaos, war, frustration, and anger into the lives of others? Doesn't it take immaturity, selfishness, anger, and fear? Those kind of people bring chaos with you, with them, and I'm sure you've known some. So as a minimum, to be a true peacemaker must mean that you're, you are mature, you are unselfish, and you're not controlled by anger and fear. When we're controlled by all that destructiveness, we make terrible decisions about ourselves and other people. We're quick to believe lies about others and about ourselves too. Often we invest unrealistic expectations in other people that they can never fulfill. And when they fail, we become angry and bitter and lash out at them. We project on others our own fears and insecurities. We wrap up our fears and all these insecurities in a sort of self-protecting pride. We may attribute awful motives and attitudes to others, and this controls our interactions with them. We destroy people with our words. Or we may allow others to be destroyed while we remain silent. No matter how much we say we love peace, if that's the story of our life, we are not peacemakers. We are warmongers. Look around at the world. Immaturity, selfishness, anger, and fear are destroying relationships every single day. Yes, even among people who claim to be followers of Jesus. So where are the peacemakers? I'm sure you remember the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. While traveling on a road, a Jewish man is attacked by robbers. He's beaten, stripped, and left near dead. Religious leaders pass by and refuse to help. You know this story. Then a Samaritan, an outcast of the Jews, comes upon him. Not only does he give immediate help, binding up his wounds, he takes him to a place of safety and at his own expense makes sure that he is cared for. I'm sure that perhaps you haven't thought about it in this way, but I think you would probably say that that Samaritan was a real peacemaker. And we're wounded and we're suffering. How wonderful it is to have someone pick us up and bind our wounds. What peace it brings. But think about that Samaritan. It seems clear from the story that he traveled that dangerous road regularly on business. He knew there were robbers who attacked people, yet apparently he traveled alone. Very likely, he carried wares with him to sell, and after he'd sold them, he carried back money. What does that scream to a band of robbers? Target. Yet he didn't appear to be afraid of being a target. Several things must have been true about that man. The first, that that Samaritan must have been a brave, strong individual. Second, I'm sure that he was well-armed. Third, if he traveled the road regularly as he did, it's very likely that he had a reputation among the robber class. Uh, that's the Samaritan. Let's pick another target. Here's a question. What would have happened if the Samaritan had come upon the robbers while they were beating that man? I'm sure he would have brought peace in a different way. The Samaritan is an interesting model of peacemaking. To be a peacemaker, you have to be strong, prepared in your heart for whatever may come, and you have to be unafraid. Wait a minute, you know who that describes perfectly? That describes Jesus, doesn't it? But Jesus went an infinite distance further. He is our peacemaker. To make peace for us with God, he offered himself as a substitute, taking the penalty for our sins, and mine is yours as well. And you know, in this death, making it possible for us to have peace with the Holy Creator God, he was willing to sacrifice himself to bring peace to you and me. So to be a peacemaker means that we are strong, prepared in our hearts, and we're unafraid. We're prepared for the attack of the enemy. If we really are followers of Jesus, that means that we're willing to give up our lives so that others can have his peace. What is necessary to live that way? Well, first we have to give up our stupid, immature selfishness and trade it in for God's wisdom and true faith. Wisdom and faith, you know, always go together because they do indeed grow together. You can't grow in faith without growing in wisdom. That's vice versa as well. Are you a wise person? Is that your reputation? Are you known for making decisions even if it costs you if those decisions are right? Or are you known for selfishness, for ego and pride? 
All of us in this room have built and are building such reputations one way or the other. What does yours look like? Do you want wisdom? You can't have it, you know, unless you want compassion too. The heart of God's wisdom is compassion. As the scriptures say, God is love. Are you compassionate? Are you loving toward those who are caught in cycles of sin and stupidity, who say and do stupid and sinful things? Or you do, do you look down on them with disdain? Now, this is a hard test for me. Personally, I hate stupid people. You know, and being a writer, it's so much fun to slice and dice them. Uh, what a stupid person. You know, I, find, when you find a stupid person, you can have some fun with them. That's my problem, you know, and I've had to work on that. But what is a stupid person? A stupid person is a person who commits different sins than I do. It's a person who has stumbled and fallen where I haven't yet. My sins and stupidities aren't really sins and stupidities. They're just little mistakes and tiny errors of judgment. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Many people who believe in Jesus claim to be and point to various spiritual gifts as the manifestation. But according to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the wisdom of God. So if you're filled with him, God's wisdom should be filling your life. And you should want more and more of it. Wisdom about yourself, about how to lead a holy life, about how to face the dangers and trials of life in this world for the glory of Jesus. You should want more wisdom about how to deal with others with the love and compassion of God our Father. James 1, 2 through 8 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Notice that these verses, which are used so often to talk about getting all sorts of things from God that we want through faith, are focused specifically, especially on getting wisdom. James directly connects getting wisdom with how to deal with trials and suffering. How are you dealing with the trials and suffering in your life right now? In the middle of them, in the middle of the suffering, are you praying for wisdom? Why are there so few peacemakers? Probably because there are so few wise, compassionate people in this world. Why are there so few wise and compassionate people? Because not many of us are willing to cry out for God's wisdom in the middle of our suffering. We ask for all sorts of other things, but not wisdom. Consequently, we don't have peace ourselves. So how can we bring peace to others? I'll tell you that the few people I've met who were true peacemakers have been through great suffering. When they came into your life, they didn't just bring peace. They were peace. They were peace, the peace of God in human form. I don't think it's possible to be a real peacemaker in this world unless you have suffered vitally and creatively. Peacemakers, you know, deal with suffering in a different way than others. They do not search for suffering. And when it comes, they want release from it. They're not masochists. But however it comes, they offer their suffering up to God as a sacrifice to him. Let's face reality. You know, we're all going to suffer, especially if you work in Hollywood. There's plenty of suffering to go around for everyone here. The question is, how will we use our suffering? Are you going through great suffering right now? God is calling you to become a peacemaker in the image of his son. When you're brokenhearted, who do you want to listen to? You know, when you really are in a terrible place. My father died suddenly when I was 30. Uh, when we were preparing for his funeral, I went back to my parents' home to get the clothes he would be buried in. For some reason, uh, my mother and sister weren't there at the time. I can't remember why. And I was alone in the house. What a heartbreaking task it was. While I was getting the clothes, the doorbell rang. A man was on the porch. I'd never met him before, but he'd heard that my father had died. And he came in and sat down and just talked with me for a few minutes. He'd been through suffering and loss. And I can tell you that that evening, he brought God's peace to me. He was a peacemaker, because a peacemaker is a peace bringer. Peace is in his or her heart. 
And that peace is built on the wisdom and compassion of God. I think this goes hand in hand with another meaning about being a peacemaker. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes his famous passage about the armor of God. I'm sure you remember it. In the armor, what covers your feet? Ephesians 6, 14 and 15 says this, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does gospel mean? It means good news. You know, I'm an old combat infantry soldier. I can't tell you how important a foot soldier is concerned, how much concern he has about what he puts on his feet. Choose the wrong footwear, and you can be crippled, you can be unable to stand, unable to fight, you can be useless in a war. What is the gospel of peace? It's the good news of salvation in Jesus that we can have peace with God, the eternal forgiveness for our sins, the most important message in all of history. Have you seen the ancient images of the Roman god Mercury? He's pictured wearing sandals with wings. The gospel of peace should put wings on our feet, carrying us to lost and broken souls who need to have God's forgiveness and healing. Isn't the ultimate peacemaking work to bring the message of the peace that God brings to people who have no peace. Are you doing that in your own little world? Are you doing it in Hollywood? Are you praying for someone who needs to meet Jesus? Are you willing for God to use you as his messenger of peace? There's risk in that. You know, when Jesus spoke these eight statements that we call Beatitudes, they didn't just pop into his head in some kind of random order. It's not a mistake that being a peacemaker comes almost at the end. Over the past year, I've said some things over and over again. The first thing I said was that these eight powerful statements that Jesus made are not meant to be sliced and separated. They're meant to stand together. More than this, they build on each other, and all of them build toward these last ones. They're meant to describe the true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I've also said that the statements that Jesus made are statements of power. For creative people living at the end of the world, that's you and me. Who want to follow Jesus in these dark days. They're the keys to unlocking and empowering the gifts God has given us for his glory to accomplish his work before he comes. There's another name for all of these things, this, these eight statements and the process that we go through and living them out in this world is called discipleship. These eight statements represent stepping stones on the narrow road that leads to the kingdom of heaven. Let me take you over those stepping stones one last time. How does being a true disciple of Jesus start? Oh my goodness, there's so much misunderstanding about some of this. Well, first we find out who he really is. He's our savior from sin and hell. We find out what he requires from those who say they want to be his followers. What he requires is obedience to him. We're not the followers of an elected leader. We're the subjects of the king of the universe. More than this, we are his creation. Yet he doesn't order us to do anything. No, he invites us to obey him. In that obedience, he promises ultimate joy and fulfillment. The word that begins each of these eight statements, if you've been with us, I hope you know what it means. Do you remember the meaning? The Greek word is makarios. And it means filled with godlike joy that the world cannot take away no matter what happens. Jesus invites us to an obedience that brings godlike joy because we love and honor him. The first step in that process is foundational to all the rest. To be his disciple, he calls his disciples to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How does this begin? We sign over ownership of everything and every person in our lives that we love, our very right to ourselves, to him. We sign over our careers, our gifts, giving him the total freedom to do whatever he wants with us. That's the first step. It's been called by many people absolute surrender. There is a moment when it starts. Sadly for me, that moment was many years after I asked Jesus to come into my heart and save me from my sins. For many years I was a believer, but I was trying to run my own life. That didn't work so well. I was not a disciple. Thank God he brought me to a great crossroads in my life. Being poor in spirit means we don't own things anymore. 
not our plans, our goals, not our possessions, not our gifts or abilities. Being poor in spirit means that we are stewards of all these things, stewards of the king's possessions. Being poor in spirit means that I've shifted my focus. My eternal possessions are not in this world. They're safe in Jesus' kingdom. The first step goes hand in hand with the second. We commit ownership of our lives to him. God opens our eyes to reality, the terrain where the war of my life is going to be fought. We see not only ourselves, we see the broken-hearted world around us. Our spiritual eyes cannot be opened without experiencing sorrow, the gift of mourning. This is the second step along the way. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We start to see what kind of sinners we really are, too. What slaves we are, how weak and unprepared to live for Jesus we really are. It's ugly, and out of that comes a life of mourning, a life of repentance for sin. It's a strange thing, but starting to see ourselves through God's eyes leads us to compassion for the broken and sinful lives of the people around us. You know, we experience a tiny portion of God's sorrow. His power to serve broken souls in Jesus' name is given to us. True repentance is the beginning of compassion for others. If you are not living a life of repentance for your own sin, I truly believe, and I've experienced it in my own life, your heart will be hard toward the sins of other people. Your heart will be hard to their brokenness. The gifts of mourning blend with a third step. We receive a strange new kind of power. To describe that kind of power, Jesus used the word meek. Was Jesus powerful? He could do anything. But meek is the word he used to, do, to describe himself. The meekness of Jesus is heaven's power under heaven's control in your life. The third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's power that's only given to the humble. It's the power to lead an increasingly righteous life. It's the power to defend the powerless. It's the power to carry the burden of your brother and sister, and in doing so, continue the work of Jesus until he comes. It's not the power to defend ourselves any more than Jesus defended himself. The power to lead a humble, righteous life brings us to the fourth step along the narrow road. We desperately hunger and thirst for more righteousness with a desire that is so great the only thing we can compare it to is the hunger of starving people for food or the thirst of a dying man for water in the desert. It's a hunger and thirst that everything be made right and pure and sinless both in our lives and in the world around us just as it is in heaven. It's the thirst that there be in me not a single drop of duplicity, a double dealing, not even a partial lie in word or in thought, no self-serving manipulation to get what I want, no excuse for dishonesty, no alibis, no petulant anger when my prayers aren't answered in the way that I wish. It's the thirst that anyone could look at any nook and corner of my life, all of my words and deeds and relationships, and I would be unashamed. It's the thirst that all of this would be true not just for me, but for everyone in the whole world. It's a thirst that the kingdom of heaven come to earth. But before it comes in its full power, we thirst that it would be seen in us as citizens of that kingdom. As we grow in maturity, Jesus takes us into ever-increasing levels of risk. The fifth step on the road is this. Filled with God-like joy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How important is this step? It's the very heart of redemption, isn't it? We could turn this statement upside down and learn something very important. Jesus could have said it the opposite way. Utterly miserable are those who refuse to show mercy, for God will show them no mercy forever. The engine that drives mercy is forgiveness. And we took a side journey for several months, if you were with us, to examine exactly what forgiveness is, where it comes from and how it works. We call forgiveness the iron discipline because it strikes so deeply at our pride, our hurt, and our anger. But as we give ourselves up to living lives of forgiveness and mercy, because God has been so forgiving and merciful to us, a strange thing happens. Jesus uses the wounds that we have suffered to purify us and fill us with his love for the very people who have done us wrong. With Jesus on his cross, we say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
Have you ever hung on your own cross, nailed there because of what someone has done to you? Laying aside anger and hurt, have you prayed the prayer of forgiveness? A cross like that will either kill you with rage and desire for revenge, or it will purify you, filling you with the same love that Jesus had for his enemies. Which leads us to the next terrifying and wonderful power statement found in Matthew chapter 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Easy to say that it just means that we shouldn't be defiled by sin, that we shouldn't be slaves to it anymore. On a mundane level, we shouldn't watch pornography or fill our minds with other evil things. That's quite true. Is that all that Jesus meant? Jesus saying that to be pure in heart, we should be Christian virgins of the three monkeys. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Should we all enter monasteries to escape the contamination of the world? Does that make us pure in heart? That's how you get to be pure in heart. There aren't many of us who will get there in this life, especially if we live and work in Hollywood. Maybe he was talking about motives and dealing with others. Maybe he was saying that we should do good to other people, be kind and merciful and forgiving. Maybe he was saying that we should want the best for others and try to see the best in them. We shouldn't automatically attribute bad motives to them. That's really hard if you've spent any time in Hollywood. After a decade or so here, the first thought that comes into your mind with anybody is, how are they trying to screw me? So is having good motives and attributing good motives to others what it means to be pure in heart? It's awfully easy to think that being pure in heart means being naive and an easy target. Was Jesus naive and an easy target? I don't think so. Yet of all men who ever ever lived, he was the most pure in heart. Maybe Jesus is saying that we should be sincere. There shouldn't be anything false in us, no guile. We shouldn't manipulate others to get what we want. We should be honest, as that is, is sincerity being pure in heart, but it's very possible to be absolutely, utterly sincere and be sincerely wrong. God isn't happy with people who are wrong, but are sincere about it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the step, that's the promise. Before we ask what it means to be pure in heart, maybe we should ask an important question. Do we really want to see God? All through the Bible, those who were shown the true glory of God are changed forever. What does it mean to be pure in heart? I believe it means to desire God himself. Not just what he can do for you, but to want him alone. Being pure in heart means to want to know him because of who he is and nothing more. And to desire this more than you desire anything in this world. I'll tell you, we can't manufacture that kind of desire. It doesn't come to us naturally. I can't work myself up to it with hours of prayer here or there. It just isn't in me. The best I can do is to say that I want to want it and pray earnestly that God will call me to it. There are not many who are pure in heart who have not experienced what it means to fall into sin. Yes, there are people who are pure in heart who have fallen into terrible sin. And through that falling, have come to know the humbling power of the deep forgiveness of God. Jesus said those who have been forgiven much, love much. The heart of every beatitude is desire. From the first of those statements, blessed are the poor in spirit, to the last, desire is the key. We talk about the call of God. What is it really? The call of God is having the Holy Spirit implant in your life and in mine an insatiable desire for God himself and God alone. That desire for him leads us and empowers us to action. Where does it empower you to go? It empowers the way of the cross. Jesus promised a cross for all of his disciples. But he says something amazing. As you walk this difficult path in faithfulness, as God purifies your heart, You will be given the greatest gift that anyone has ever received. You will see the Eternal One in all of His glory. The pure in heart shall see God. The way of the cross is the way of the peacemaker. You begin to get a shadow of what Jesus is trying to tell us. What He wants to do in your life and mine. This is what discipleship is about. It isn't just about share groups or Bible study programs. It is this kind of life commitment. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is just an amplification of these statements. 
And what is the last statement? Where does the way of the cross lead? Where does the way of the peacemaker lead? Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says this. Blessed, filled with God-like joy that the world cannot take away no matter what happens, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 11 describes it more fully. This is what he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now the Greek word translated revile is anadidzo. It means to defame you, to slander you, to publicly taunt you, to destroy your good reputation. The Greek word that's translated persecute is dioko. And it means to pursue. They've set the dogs on you. They're after you. They won't leave you alone. They are going to hound you to death with all that they're doing and all they're reviling. This reviling and persecution takes place for one reason. Because you are associated with Jesus. You represent Jesus in the minds of people. They have no reason to hate you other than that. They hate Jesus, but they can't touch him. So they take it out on you. Now, there are a lot of people who think they're being reviled and persecuted for Jesus' sake, when the truth is, they're just obnoxious human beings. It's true. They can't get along, you know, with other people. They suffer for it. And they, they think they're really suffering for Jesus' sake. There are other people who go through normal human suffering and difficulty and think that is persecution. There are still others who have done stupid things and they're suffering for them, and they think that's being persecuted for Jesus. All of that's wrong. Suffering isn't necessarily persecution, but all suffering we can offer up to God. and All of it can be part of the way of the cross. But here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about a unique kind of suffering. These last two statements are the culmination of the path of discipleship in this world. This is the culmination of the narrow road. It's a lifelong process, but I'll tell you, don't make the mistake of thinking that you won't get to these last Beatitudes about suffering until you're old. Oh no, God can take you down His path very quickly. For some like me, it takes many years. There are others who learn much faster. There's another way to describe all that we've said about following Jesus and becoming a peacemaker. In Galatians 4.19, that little Jewish rabbi Paul uses some interesting words. He says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again, until the Messiah is formed in you. The life that we call discipleship that leads to our being peacemakers in Jesus' name and yes, may lead to rejection and suffering is actually the process of Messiah Jesus himself being formed in us through our surrender and the work of his Holy Spirit. When that takes place, When we are becoming more and more like him, the powers of darkness will hate us because when they look at us, they will see Jesus. It's no surprise then if we face persecution. In the past, we've talked about the depth of Jesus' love for us. It's clear from the book of Acts and elsewhere that he feels every single hurt that you experience as though each one of those hurts that you were experiencing was happening to him at that moment. Satan knows this. It brings him great pleasure to inflict suffering on the king through you. Jesus is saying, when you follow me in discipleship, when you are not ashamed to publicly bear my name, expect to experience what I experienced. I was reviled. I was called demon-possessed. I was called a servant of Satan. I was ridiculed. My reputation, even the reputation of my family, was destroyed. People were so enraged at me that they wanted to kill me. Finally, they did kill me. Are you willing to give up your reputation for the sake of bearing my name in your world? Are you willing to be thought a fool and a failure? Are you willing for this to happen for no other reason than you love me? Are you willing to be persecuted and reviled in return? You're willing to bless and pray for those who are doing it. Are you willing to lose your career, your possessions, even your family, maybe your life, everything that means anything to you in this world 
so that you can follow me as my disciple? If so, great is your reward in heaven. So we come to the end of the journey. The journey that began with the surrender of your life to the king and ends in front of his throne in heaven. You started on that journey? Where are you at? Are you, uh, maybe you took a long side journey like I did for periods of time where I just sort of walked away from that idea. Maybe there are some of us who are really struggling. We want to follow the Lord, but it's so difficult right now. Well, we're here to pray with you and talk to you. Whatever you're, wherever you're at, maybe you haven't even asked Jesus to come into your heart and be your Savior yet. Well, that's something that you need to do tonight. Whatever it is, that commitment of saying, I give everything into Jesus' hands my whole life in absolute surrender. I ask him to be my Lord, my Savior, to be my shepherd, and I will follow him. Give me strength, Lord. That is what he calls you to do. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the path of discipleship that you made possible. When you sent Jesus into this world to be our shepherd and our king, to be our savior, to be our substitute. We praise you for that, Lord. We praise you that the path of heaven is open for us because he made the way. That path is strewn with blood. Lord, we pray that you would make us into the people you want us to be, that we might serve you and serve your kingdom and bring glory to Jesus and fruit from our lives for kingdom, that kingdom of heaven forever. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. So how is your journey going through these worlds at war? On this journey, so many people I know are suffering. If that includes you, you are not alone. If I can be of help, please write to me. I can be reached by email. The address is colemanluck at gmail.com. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast and have a few minutes, would you rate us on iTunes? It would be a great help. I hope you'll come back next time when we will examine a false heaven full of lies.